Many questions were posed to the Savior during his mortal ministry. If you had the chance to ask him one question in person, what would that question be? We're going to explore one man's very critical question later on in the podcast today. Welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. We are Maureen and Scott Proctor, and we're so happy to be with you in your home or car again this week. Today's lesson is entitled, Spoiler Alert, What Lack I Yet? and covers Matthew chapters 19 and 20, Mark chapter 10, and Luke chapter 18. We hope that you are not only podcast listeners, but Meridian followers at latterdaysaintmag.com. Do you realize that we're in our 21st year of publishing Meridian Magazine? We have published over 37,000 original articles and over 1,100 authors. That's a lot. Many years ago in our family home evening, we posed a question to all our many children. If you could ask Jesus one question, what would it be? We went around the room and got a response from each child. One said, I'd ask him, do you hear every one of my prayers? Another one asked simply, why didn't the dinosaurs survive until today? I want to see one. One other asked, what does heaven look like? I really thought about this, if you remember, Maureen, and I wanted to come up with a really great question. I said, what about my life is pleasing to you? And of course, Maureen, you remember what question you came up with. Oh, I do remember. I said, can you tell me all that you know that I don't know? That, yeah. was the, that was the topper. That was the question of the night, and everyone after that wanted to have one more chance formulating another question. In this week's lesson, we have a very powerful question asked of the Lord face-to-face in His ministry, and it's worth all of us pondering about this specific question. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 26. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? That is certainly a question that we could ask as we are trying to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. We're familiar with these commandments. In fact, he reviews six of the Ten Commandments with the young man. And finally, the young man said to him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. He feels like he's done everything so far that's been asked of him. Then he poses the most important question of this interaction and the focus of this lesson. What lack I yet? Now, that's not just a one-time question. It's something we should be asking throughout our lives at various stages. This is a question the Lord is very willing to answer. It is a humble question if asked in that spirit. We have to be willing to receive an answer. It kind of reminds me of Elder Joe J. Christensen years ago who gave a sure way for the brothers to receive revelation. He said, Brother Brent Barlow posed a question to a group of priesthood brethren. How many of you would like to receive a revelation? Every hand went up. He then suggested that they all go home and ask their wives how they could be better husbands. (laughs) That's kind of a what lack I yet type of question, and it works in marriage. But wives, be gentle. President Russell M. Nelson starts at an even more basic level. If you are not sure you even believe in God, start there. Understand that in the absence of experiences with God, one can doubt the existence of God. So put yourself in a position to begin having experiences with Him, God. 
Humble yourself. Pray to have eyes to see God's hand in your life and in the world around you. Ask him to tell you if he is really there, if he knows you. Ask him how he feels about you, and then listen. God is very willing and ready to talk to us. I think sometimes we are ready to ask questions or even offer our series of demands to him, but we don't have the patience or the time in our minds or the habit of listening. Again, President Nelson says, listen. Back to our story. Here we love the account in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, that adds a very sweet detail. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. That's the way the Lord looks upon each of us. Can we believe that the Lord looks upon us with love? If we do not picture him that way, then we have a false paradigm of who he is. Back to the testimony of Mark account. And Jesus said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. The request tugged at his conscience, but was too much, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The issue was not just a matter of heart, the impossibility of serving God and mammon. It is also a question of disparity. The poor all about us who hunger and want, while the rich hoard live to excess or exact high prices. The resulting enmity and disparity is not unnoticed by the Lord. An ancient prophet exhorting his people to pray added this warning, If ye turn away the needy and the naked, your prayer is vain and availeth you nothing. That was no small thing the Lord was asking of the young rich man. But I think we mistakenly think that the hardest thing he was asking was for him to give up his riches. Let's explore this further. Jesus tells the young man to take up the cross. What does that really mean? Fortunately, the Joseph Smith translation answers this question. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. The King James Version reads, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Then we have this wonderful addition from the prophet Joseph. And now for a man to take up his cross is to deny himself all ungodliness and every worldly lust and keep my commandments. There is the plain definition of what it means to take up the cross, a three-step journey. Deny ourselves of all ungodliness. Two, deny ourselves of every worldly lust. And three, keep his commandments. This requires a change of heart and in many cases a change of priorities and change of focus in one's life. What does it mean to deny ourselves of all ungodliness and every worldly lust in a modern day world? We think this would cover a lot of things. Deny ourselves of anything that would lead us away from God and His Holy Spirit. Deny ourselves of reading materials, television shows, motion pictures, websites, photographs, associations, and any technology, anything that would lead us away from Him. Isn't this worth doing? Don't you think we should do everything in our power to draw closer to Him, to take up our cross, and strive with all of our hearts to keep His commandments? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, the answer to that question of what lack I yet will be different for each of us. You and the Lord together can find the answer. 
In the first few verses of Matthew chapter 19 and also in Mark chapter 10, the Lord talks about the critical importance of marriage between a man and a woman. He refers in his teachings to the Genesis account of creation in Matthew 19, 4 and 5. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. I love that scripture. Let's look at the Genesis account in chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The most interesting word to me in that verse is, therefore. Whenever I see therefore, I ask, wherefore? What is the antecedent of therefore? In other words, what is therefore referring to? It is referring to the creation itself, the whole creation of the earth and the fullness thereof and the creation of man and woman. Therefore, because of the creation, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. And I believe that originally meant shall the man Adam leave his heavenly parents and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. In the Doctrine and Covenants section 42, given as the law of the church, the commandment is very clear in this regard in verse 24. Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart and cleave unto her and none else. That word cleave is so important in marriage. It seems to me, Scott, as we're talking about it, that this idea suggests that the very creation was for man and woman to come together and multiply and replenish the earth. And that without that happening, the creation is for naught. That's right. That's right. That's overwhelming when you think about it. Spencer W. Kimball taught, The Lord says in no uncertain terms, Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, and shalt cleave unto her and none else. And when the Lord says, All thy heart, it allows for no sharing, nor dividing, nor depriving. And to the woman, it is paraphrased, Thou shalt love thy husband with all thy heart, and shalt cleave unto him, and none else. I like that idea of one cleaving to one's husband or one's wife, and loving them with all your heart. You give me good opportunity to do that. Mm, It's one of my favorite scriptures. The words none else eliminate everyone and everything. The spouse then becomes preeminent in the life of the husband or wife, and neither social life, nor occupational life, nor political life, nor any other interest, nor person, nor thing shall ever take precedence over the companion spouse. We sometimes find women who absorb and hover over the children at the expense of the husband, sometimes even estranging them from him. The Lord says to them, Thou shalt cleave unto him and none else. President Kimball continues, Marriage presupposes total allegiance and total fidelity. Each spouse takes the partner with the understanding that he or she gives totally to the spouse all the heart, strength, loyalty, honor, and affection with all dignity. Any divergence is sin. Any sharing of the heart is transgression. As we should have an eye single to the glory of God, So should we have an eye, an ear, a heart, single to the marriage and the spouse and family. Since marriage is so vital to our Heavenly Father's plan, and also as it is essential to our happiness, we thought we would share parts of some advice we gave our daughter when she was about to be married. Though this advice was given by Maureen as a mother and written in first person to our daughter Mariah, We think we can all learn something from this, and I will give some pieces of it since it too comes from my heart. I wrote her, Dearest daughter, 
In a few days you will be married, and I will watch you close the door on your childhood with poignancy. You will pack your youth away like a dress you outgrew, and I confess I will miss everything about your presence in this house. I think I will run into your room to tell you something, and I'll be surprised that you're not there. I want to give you a parting gift, my thoughts on how to be joyfully happy in marriage. These seven keys are easier to say than to accomplish, but I trust that in the journey ahead you will understand what to do, and perhaps in just the right moment they will come back to you. This counsel I give to both. 1. Marrying across an altar. The altar in the temple at which you will kneel is profoundly significant. It is an altar that symbolizes the great atoning sacrifice of our Savior. Why would the Lord have us sealed across this altar? This is the great secret. You know that his atonement means at-one-ment, and it is through this stunning, unimaginable gift that we can again be reconciled to God, made at one with him, our face turning home again, the veil rent. Not surprisingly, then, it is also through the Lord's atonement that we become one with each other, that two who have lived their lives separately and singly can be joined for eternity, never to be entirely separated again. The Lord says, I will take you on a journey to wholeness. The broken things in you I can mend. The incompletion I can complete. It is tempting to think you have a better plan for his way of being. Oneness in marriage is actually made possible through the atonement and the gradual change and expansion in us that is promised if we accept this gift we are to leave behind our old, smaller selves. Satan's work is to scatter and divide us. The Greek word for Satan is diabolus, meaning to divide or separate. This name means he who places division. It was Satan's work to scatter the children of Israel and the Lord's to gather them in one again. Those who ultimately live in Zion will be of one heart. Satan sows division. The Lord invites us to oneness. So there you'll be, kneeling across an altar, symbolizing that opportunity for the oneness you seek. And it will come if you both are willing to accept the Lord's gift of grace that this altar symbolizes. We come to each other in marriage, incomplete and somewhat fragmented. We are still children about so many things. The Lord says, I will take you on a journey to wholeness. The broken things in you I can mend. The incompletion I can complete. The promises for this journey are more than finite minds can comprehend, but the sacrifice is not just Christ's. It will involve your sacrifice as well, the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. You must be willing to grow, discard the parts of you that are small and contracted. You must shed parts of yourself that are burdening the way even your favorite, most habitual, and long-justified weaknesses. Oh, that is hard. Happiness is built, though, on repentance and changing, and expanding yourself is happily not your job alone. Christ has taken that on long ago. It may be tempting to think that you have come to this altar to change your new husband. If you don't think it now, there may be times in the future you might be convinced that is your job. It's tempting to think you have a better plan for his way of being, but be very wary of having a plan for how anyone can change. When you are dealing with another person's identity, you are on sacred ground. Take off your shoes where you stand. If you will both remember this temple altar and be devoted to the Lord who unites you, he will change both of you as you submit your heart to him. 
you don't need to do his work for your spouse. A repenting couple is a happy couple, repenting particularly in the sense that you are both humble and willing to enlarge your understanding and perspective, willing to change what is trivial and weak about yourself. Both of you can remember that you are coming to marriage to take a journey together back into the Lord's presence. That means you are both committed to finding an expanded, better version of yourself and you trust that the Lord's gift can work this in you. It is, in fact, only the Lord's gift that can work this in you. So my second piece of advice to our daughter was create holy habits. Couples create a culture together. It's their own new world that they create. You've seen couples who become fat together or sloppy together or mean-spirited together. From this moment onward, you will be the greatest influence in each other's life. Decide to become devoted disciples of Jesus Christ together. Pray together morning and night. Life will be hectic and demanding. You may feel that there is so much to do that you just have to hit the ground running to even survive. But build into your very system this unshakable habit of talking to the Lord together. This comes with some really practical advice. Go to bed at the same time. That bedtime practice matters because this is your time to talk, to download your day, to share your sorrows and find your solutions, and, of course, to say your prayers. In your prayers, remember to express your gratitude for each other in the most specific ways. Be grateful for the gifts you gave each other that day and the service that was rendered. Watch each day for the inspiration that the Lord has given you. Remember it and thank him aloud and specifically in your prayers for his gift to you this day. Of course, read your scriptures, attend the temple, watch for opportunities to serve. Say to yourselves from the beginning, this is who we are, this is what we do. This is like a mission statement for you as a couple. Put it in a place as a foundation, and then when the winds blow, when life is wearying, when you are overwhelmed, you have these holy habits in place and then everything is easier. Number three, never underestimate your power for good in his life. Though each of us are grand eternal spirits lit by God himself, here on earth we are fragile, our view of ourselves constantly evolving. We may rise and fall according to the reflection we see of ourselves in each other's eyes. You will have the greatest influence on how your new husband comes to see himself, and of course, he will have this same impact on you. This is a surging power for good or ill in each other's life, which you must never underestimate. The problem, of course, is that in the rub and grind of everyday life, your spouse's weaknesses become clear. Sometimes you have strengths where he doesn't, and you see solutions to a problem that he continues to enlarge, or vice versa. How tempting it is to take out life's difficulties on each other. This is especially challenging when you live with relentless difficulties, in part, sponsored by your spouse. You won't need to remind your husband of his weaknesses. He already knows, and he'll know yours as well. Just as you hope he will see past your flaws, look past his as well. Marriage is a union of two flawed human beings who are making the most important journey together. In spite of those flaws, we forgive each other, we build each other, and yes, Sometimes we even compensate for each other's weaknesses as part of the journey. Watch for the good things he does and remind him that you noticed. Reflect his strengths back to him. 
See into his soul for the greatness that lies there. Be his ally and friend, not only to him, but to others as well. Some are degrading to their spouse, and just as bad, they complain to others about their spouse. Now remember, this is Maureen's advice to our daughter. Your dad and I decided a long time ago that we would never do this. I'm absolutely confident that he will watch out for me in every situation and that he will use any conversation about me to build me in the eyes of others. You do do that, Scott. Hmm. I appreciate that. More importantly, I wrote, he always makes me think better of myself. When life is hard and I feel disappointed in my weaknesses, I know exactly where to go to feel better. I look in his eyes and I see reflected there the very best idea of myself. I know you. I believe in you. He says it and lives it and makes me believe it. What a profound service from a spouse from you, Scott. I try to return that service once life became very financially challenging for us. This is common in marriage, but it played upon a weakness of mine. I have been sometimes quick to fear, anxious in this case, about those bills that never seem to stop arriving. I've learned that in fear you can make the very worst speeches, lashing out because you are worried, almost as if your emotions are a pressure cooker, seething and committed to boil over. In a day when we felt keenly the shift in the larger economy, Dad turned to me and asked, Are you okay? I reached deep down past the rumbling of fear to my deepest self and answered, I know we will be fine because I know how well you solve any problem. Dad has told me many times how much I built his confidence that day. I remember it well. Yeah, this is something I wrote to Mariah, but I remember that day well, too, because it would have been so easy just to lash out in fear and say, Whose fault is this? Is this your fault? Instead, it was a positive day. We're made larger by the way we see each other. Find every good thing about your spouse and reflect it back to him. Four, be each other's safe harbor. Oh, the inexpressible comfort of having a safe harbor on earth, a place wherein all your vulnerabilities and plainness and heartache, there is shelter from the storm. Sometimes those storms are outside and life is just too tough. Sometimes those storms are inside and you keenly wish you were more. To have a place of ultimate safety when the winds blow is what one spouse can do for another. Of course, you hope your spouse is a safe harbor for you, but you must also learn what it takes to be a safe harbor for him. To be someone's safe harbor, you have to develop strengths you've never had to call upon before. You must rise above the temptation to moodiness. You will have to rise above ego and fear and pettiness and so many of the weaknesses attached to mortality. For all of us, that is a wrestle, but we work at it because we love our spouse and know they deserve our best. Being a safe harbor means you don't use his vulnerabilities against him. You are aware of his sensitivities and don't go trampling there. You listen, even if you are listening to the same angst you've heard so many times before. You help him find the deepest wisdom in himself. You shore him up for another day. Number five, be wise in dealing with differences. When two people come together, it is more like two universes coming together with galaxies and whirling worlds, stars that have arisen and then sunk to darkness. Each of you is huge, a collection of memories and things forgotten that still press upon your consciousness. And, what's more, pre-mortal existences that you can't remember but have shaped who you are. 
Now you are seeking to become a union of one, which means you are bringing all of this enormity that is yourselves together. In this, your planets may collide. Oh, that's never happened to us. <laughs> Wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> you will have differences. Your preferences may diverge. Your ideas about what really, really matters may sometimes clash. At the most basic level, in some vital areas, you may not see the world the same way. What makes things particularly challenging is that we are convinced that the way we have come to see the world is reality. We believe that what we perceive is the absolute truth about existence. After all, it has worked for us so far, or at least it has somewhat worked. You think, what I see is absolute truth. It's the way things are. You've never before had to be so closely associated with someone and be shoulder to shoulder with someone who undoubtedly thinks absolute truth looks different than you do. This can either be frightening and irritating or a chance to grow. You see it in small things, of course. He says, keep it cool. I'm so hot. She says, I'm freezing. He says, early to bed for a great start the next day. She says, I love to stay up late. It's my only personal time of the day. He says, I love blue Christmas lights. She says, nobody would think of decorating at Christmas with blue lights. These are tiny examples, but life is full of much bigger ones. Much. Some people deal with differences by fighting. Some seek to overpower the other by will. This can take a number of forms like pouting, whining, undercutting each other. Oh, how unfortunate this is. Instead of going into the ring and fighting out differences, sit down together and talk. Ask, how do you see this? Why does this matter so much to you? How important is this? What can we do to meet both of our needs? Learn to give each a chance to talk about why something matters so much. Find solutions that accommodate both. Neither is always right. Neither should dominate. Truly seek to understand each other's viewpoint. It may turn out that what you thought was reality is only your opinion. You will grow to see things in a much richer way when you listen to each other and come up with ideas that bring in the best of both of your perspectives. What stands in the way of this is if your opinion is charged with a lot of emotion. People always used to give the advice, never go to bed angry. I think it is a much better idea sometimes to get your rest and talk about something in the morning. Fatigue, fear, worry are all expressed sometimes in anger. Be careful when you are battling these states. You can erupt in unnecessary anger. Don't forget to use laughter as your secret weapon to diffuse a situation. Here's two phrases you must never forget and will probably use often. I see this must be so, or you may be right. Your differences can be your strength and enlarge your personal universe. Number six, watch for opportunities to serve each other. You get to develop an eye for how to serve somebody else, namely that person you are pledged to love. Watch for those opportunities because they come every day. Dad has a repeating event that shows up every day on his calendar. It is, have I made Maureen happy today? Neither of us actually think that anyone can make you happy. That is your own responsibility. Yet how sweet to think your father remembers every day to think about ways to please me and help me and lift my life. It makes life a little bit of heaven. One key way to serve each other is to keep the romance alive. Think of ways to say, I love you. Plan surprises. Be lighthearted. Nobody says that because you become married, you have to be sober and adult. 
Hold on to your youthful exuberance about life and love. It's contagious. And number seven, believe that things work out. Some people think that as you mature, you become less hopeful. In reality, optimism is the gift of the spiritually mature. It is because they have come to see how very much they can rely on the Lord to carry them. They know that he is completely trustworthy. If you are worried in a coming day, if you feel a bit hopeless or fearful, remember President Gordon B. Hinckley's line, It isn't as bad as you sometimes think it is. It all works out. Don't worry. I say that to myself every morning. It will all work out. If you do your best, it will all work out. Put your trust in God and move forward with faith and confidence in the future. The Lord will not forsake us. End of quote. We used to have a quote like that from President Hinckley on our bathroom mirror. It kept us going. I read it every day. I reminded myself often that things work out. You know what? They do. Even if things look temporarily difficult, they work out. Believe that together and you will be fueled with energy, productivity, and hope. So, dear daughter, rejoice. You have seen some of the world, but I know that marriage will be your greatest journey yet. I love you, Mom. Well, that is our approach to marriage. I've encouraged Maureen to make that letter into a beautiful booklet for new brides. Don't you think she should? The Savior taught that marriage was sacred, that it is ordained of his Father, that we should cleave unto each other as husband and wife more than anything else. We know that not all situations of our listeners are ideal. Some of you live alone. Some of you are single parents striving to raise your family. Some of you have never had the opportunity for marriage. But there is something we can all do. We can love one another. We can draw closer to Christ. We can help and encourage the marriages around us. We can be an example of Christ-like love to our neighbors and associates. We can watch for opportunities to serve each other. We can believe things do work out. All of these things will prove to bless our lives and the lives of those around us. Thanks for listening today. And as always, we're grateful to Paul Cardall for his lovely music that opens and closes this podcast. He is so kind to share. Next week's lesson is called Behold Thy King Cometh and will include readings from Matthew chapters 21 through 23, Mark chapter 11, Luke 19 and 20, and John chapter 12. Thanks for joining us. Happy studies. See you again next time.